Today is February 10th. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Native Calgarian is being recorded on, recorded on the lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S.-Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border, the Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are also on Treaty 7, signed in 1877 with signatories that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, which are the Whistley, Chiniki, and Bearspaw Nations, and the Sutina Nation. I acknowledge all First Nations, sorry, I acknowledge all First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. Oki, I'm Mekochis Chased Komaki, or Red Thunder Woman in Blackfoot. My spirit name was given to me in ceremony. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. I honor the Blackfoot as the keepers of the lands that I get to be born on. My name is Michelle Robinson. I was born in Calgary as Michelle Elliott, a very another a very English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but our Indian Act and Post status cards by the Canadian government say Yellow Knives Dene. My father is so Canadian that I am the daughter of the Mayflower and the daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act and Post status card. I acknowledge my Dene lineage and that I was born in Calgary, but my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories, making me a visitor here. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I am a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area called Klincho Tine Indehe in my language of Dene, meaning many horse town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous as well as honoring the host as a person who is a guest. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I can share what I know as I walk down my red road. If you're experiencing emotional distress after talking anything you hear or that I'm talking about today, you can call the First Nation an Inuit Hope for Wellness helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll-free and open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. To the non-Indigenous, there are distress center lines in your area that you can also call. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. I want to say thank you to my previous donors for already showing your support to the show. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. For those that cannot afford to give, but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. We are also on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. NativeCalgarian.com is also up. So, um, a lot has happened since we did our last recording. Um, I want to start by saying that the last time I recorded was on the 30th. It took two days for it to get up, so... Things are definitely, you know, time is going by and I'm, I'm not realizing how quickly it's going by. So I guess January 31st was the day, uh, a Thursday, and um, I was invited by the NDP to go to our Rachel Notley rally downtown at the Royal Canadian Legion. They even had a bus that did a pickup from Walmart um, at Marlboro Mall. So that was uh, really interesting. So you may have seen my live broadcast my live video of it and um it really was a campaign rally the rich has not dropped so that means technically we're not actually doing any um 
elections. It's not the government's still under the NDP and it's still going, but the way people are behaving, it's as if we're campaigning. And I guess really we've been campaigning for a super long time. So, you know, I, I've uh, said it to a few of the NDP insiders, you know, there are ways to talk about um, Indigenous sovereignty and consent and uh, mean it and care about Indigenous education. Like they're doing, you know, not so many good things right. But unfortunately, you know, this mantra, build those pipelines, is really saying, we don't care about your sovereignty and consent, natives. We don't care. We're going over that no matter what. And that is a real issue because, you know, if we're going to be in solidarity, in solidarity with the Wisotuin and uh, the Unistotin camp, we have to be honest about what that means, build that pipe. And if build that pipe means we're not going to listen to the Constitution and we don't care about sovereignty and we don't care about consent and we don't care about Canadian law, just the ones that suit us as we see fit, then we don't really care about solidarity with Indigenous people. So a lot of this uh, education I have a lot of problem with. Um, not having MLAs that understand the gravity of what they're saying. It's one thing to talk about reconciliation with Indigenous people, but <laughs> there's no land being given back and there's certainly no care about consent. And you can't kind of do that. You can't have reconciliation without that understanding. So I am always disappointed about these conversations and how you know, far they really go. So I want to acknowledge the Chinese Vietnamese New Year. Um, my auntie, one of my aunties who married my Dene uncle, she's Chinese. She was born in Hong Kong. So Chinese Vietnamese New Year, it matters to me for a lot of reasons. But of course, the number one being is my auntie. I was lucky enough to be invited by David Kahn to the Ranchman's Club on uh, February 6th. There's a group of women they're, you know, well-respected CEOs, well-respected business owners, and they um, really talk a lot about <sighs> bigger, bigger policy development issues. We met this wonderful woman, and she was actually uh, one of the people working on the water issues that are in Rocky View and such. So really excited to see where that goes. Because as I told her when I was door knocking in Ward 10, there were folks in Abbeydale that talked about the water that leaks in their basements now that they've done the ring road development on the east side of Calgary and how, because that's just a jurisdictional nightmare and nobody wants to claim responsibility, we're having water control issues on top of the issues that we're facing with Prince Peace. So uh, it was an interesting conversation to have with her. But basically uh, the point of the conversation was to hear David Kahn talk about uh, what he see coming up in the election and such. So, you know, of course, I have liberal values. Of course, everything that they said, I 100% agree with. So my hope is, is that people will uh, start paying attention to the upcoming election and, and be talking about bigger issues like water and um, other main projects that really disrupt waterways, um, aquifers, infrastructure, go from there. Immediately following that conversation, the Women's Center had an Indigenous Families and Child Intervention uh, conversation. And it, it's very personal to me right now as uh, some of the things that are happening. But hearing from the actual folks, you know, their perspective was really interesting. So there was a, a social worker from Legal Aid and a lawyer from Legal Aid. And, you know, 
It was wonderful to hear her say the words, we're always on the side of the parent involved in court action issues because I've been dealing with a lot of indigenous in the course of my entire political career that just don't have that. Um, always, always the crown is on side with the crown. And, you know, for a government agency like the World Child Welfare to be involved, everyone assumes things that aren't true. Now, I'm going to give you some background. Child welfare, there is no mandatory Indigenous education. There is a lot of bias, discrimination, and outright racism within the system. Now, folks like Cindy Blackstock have been out there talking about these issues, talking about the inherent racism within the system, and focuses solely on the dollar-to-dollar funding uh, indigenous have never received dollar-to-dollar funding that non-indigenous receive, yet we're over- overrepresented in the system. So, for example, in Alberta alone, 65% of the kids in care are indigenous. <sighs> so, and anyway, I didn't mean to get on tangent, but um, I did learn a few different things thanks to this conversation that was at the Women's Center. Um, and one of the the lawyers for legal aid talked about how you know we can act, ask for um and consult before the court court apprehension 10 days within 10 days you have to have um your case in front of the court and in 42 days the court needs to decide if the protection so called com- protection concerns are warranted or not now i want to ask any of my listeners How do you feel about your kid being out of your care for 10 days or 42 days? Because some arbitrary person decided protection concerns is an issue. So I would just want you to look at your own child and figure out for whatever reason someone decided to to discriminate against your family, how you would feel about being separated from your child for 10 to 42 days. That's the system that we have here right now. Right now, um, across Canada, if you are, if you have a child with a disability, they can be apprehended for no apparent reason other than to say you're a neglectful parent. They will then pay somebody else to be a so-called parent to a foster parent to your child. There's a woman named Velvet Martin and she decided this was wrong. Her daughter, Samantha, was born with a disability and, uh, you know, so in order for that child to get the medical care, they make it seem like it's a choice. But if you give your child to the state, then suddenly they will get the care that they so-called require. But that, of course, that didn't happen in Samantha's case. And uh, uh, she ended up dying thanks to the so-called care that she got. So her mom, Velvet Martin, worked really hard to get Samantha's law enacted here in Alberta. So in Alberta now, if your child is born with a disability, they will still receive the care that the, uh, under the parent's um, supervision and not necessarily apprehend the child. But I will mention this, the Martins were not Indigenous. And the racism embedded within the system is still present today. So I know Velvet's working really hard to try to get that national. And I know the Canadian um, provincial uh, branches are fighting her every step of the way. And you can see why, because there's a lot of social workers and agencies that really prefer that money. So I, um, 
I actually don't have a lot of respect for the child welfare apprehension system at the current uh, present time, because right now it never favors the family and it doesn't necessarily give the resources that the family needs. And the court system is so overburdened, it's very hard to maneuver and work within it. So um, temporary garden, garden, guardianship is uh, usually the option because most alternative is the court, which is could be more than a six-month temporary gardener, guardianship. Uh, the trajectory plans are new and important, but ultimately they're not implemented, and they're not implemented nationally. Uh, one of the lawyers spoke about a judgment and working um, with folks to talk about strengths that build up the people, the parents that are getting their child apprehended, because currently what happens is that they find everything possibly wrong that they can about a parent. Now, imagine you as a parent having everything that in your world critiqued, whether it's the dishes in the sink, whether it's the vacuuming, whether it's a, a pet in the house, but always looked at in a negative way and never from a strength-based position ever. That's the way child apprehension works right now in Canada. And um, so that's why it's important when this lawyer talks about the strengths. I mean, it is a real hurtful, um, painful thing to go through child welfare. And then to be told you're a bad parent and then just at a certain point submit and say, okay, I'm a bad parent and go with it. It's absolutely um, irresponsible to do that to a parent. So a lot of these legal aid lawyers have to actually work hard at building up the parent again because they've been told that they are a bad parent for so long by child welfare. So I, I tried to take the time to ask her about trauma-informed care because ultimately right now that is something that we're, I've been advocating for in domestic violence situations and, um, you know, interactions with police, interactions with social worker. And honestly, it's not, it's not policy at all. In fact, the opposite um, it's almost like going from an abusive relationship from your abuser, calling the police, getting abused, and then calling um, the social workers and they're abusive to you as well. So you're getting all these levels of abuse thrown at you. And um, trauma-informed care is realizing that, oh, this person actually went through a trauma. So how do we fix this? But that's not the current model. That's a part of the Canadian system at all. It's all about how awful and terrible Indigenous people are and how awful and terrible anybody who has a child that's not 100% perfect is. So that needs to change. Um, parent assessment. So there's an assessor that does a series of tests from a Western perspective. Um, there's a really short list of assessors and there's no control over the assessor. And unfortunately, most of them have this Western point of view that basically looks down on Indigenous people. So, you know, there was um, and one of the lawyers who just outright said, like, there are people that they never want to have um, assess parents that they're working with because they know what the answer will be. And I think that that's, like, the most awful, heinous thing I've ever heard. The way it was explained was that these assessors um, and now these are people who, you know, have PhDs, are psychologists and such, and they they literally don't get paid enough to do a proper assessment either. So that's why you need that political intervention. You know, most are not culturally sensitive. 
they never take into account intergenerational trauma and Indian residential schools. So like this is the problem that we have in the system, this ARC team right now that does the, um, they're, they're the ones in control of these parenting assessment. Like if there was ever a place to advocate for cultural and anti-racism training, it's right here. Because these are the folks that assume if you're a person of color or indigenous, they never take into account the intergenerational trauma and the racism that you experience because they already have their biases. So you can imagine how awful this is. And there's not even that many assessors and there's they're not culturally trained at all. So if there was ever a place to advocate for change, and if this is an Alberta experience, I know it's across the board. So, you know, this was the lawyer that talked about this at this um, conversation. So I highly, highly recommend that people like really pay attention to that. Um, so she also said at a Canadian Bar Association, you know, 65% of the kids are Indigenous. Now, I had said that at a previous talk when there was a new immigrant from Lebanon that had heard me say that at another talk. So she actually came to this talk to hear it again from other people and not just me. And she was literally in tears because she was a mother and she could not imagine. And, you know, racism being so prevalent within the system that all of these kids are being taken, but at least she got validation from the speakers. So, you know, they talked about a cultural connection plan is kind of an afterthought. So that's something that if you are indigenous and you're at all get, having child welfare, wanting to be involved in your life, Talk to your band immediately about a cultural connection plan. Talk to your caseworker about a cultural connection plan because, you know, and I personally know some of the folks who, you know, are supposedly indigenous sensitive and yet, you know, right away pushed Christianity and Christian belief systems right on, on folks right away. And when asked for indigenous um, inclusion, you know, Things like, oh, I went to a sweat and it was so awful. Instead of, oh, we want to support you. We understand why this is important to you because we understand colonialism and intergenerational trauma. These are really important things to be talking about. And yet it just goes in one ear and out the other. People think they know, but they don't understand how intrusive this whole programming is. Um, so I guess there's the Child Enhancement Act that advocates in two streams that's something that I'm going to start researching deeper into to find out more. Um, PGO is uh, um, a, an acronym that they use to talk about apprehending um, kids and such. And um, so if your kid is not in the system, then there are issues that are never properly documented that PGO kids get. Like, so for example... Um, you know, I was a stupid 15-year-old kid. Go to school, do stupid stuff. Nobody really thinks too much about it. But if I'm PGO, or otherwise I'm under the case, uh, I'm under the supervision of a caseworker, or a social worker in the system, every tiny little thing I do is looked at and over-manipulated to be used against you. So like other kids who make mistakes, these things are not written down and documented. But every tiny little mistake that any kid in the system has is over-documented to the point that they know they are worthless. They feel worthless. I'll never forget going to that one funeral and having all of these kids come up and talk about what misfits they felt, 
when one of their friends died and she was indigenous. So right away, I talked about her being, you know, part of the uh, murdered indigenous women and girls and her mom agreed, but you know, she was in the system. So right away I had like, you know, the executive director of a certain uh, nonprofit say, oh, well, she doesn't really classify under that. And I said, uh, yeah, she does. She's an indigenous girl that was killed. So yes, she does. And I have her mother's permission. But the fact is, these CEOs, these non-indigenous folks who think that they're helping, they're actually the most problematic and they don't even know it, causing a lot of the pain and suffering that's happening. So there were some other folks from different organizations that were there and they just talked about, you know, they're a contract to child services. And um, yeah, I don't really want to talk too much about what the other people said, because the person who really spoke the well and the most about the importance of the system and how it's stacked up against Indigenous was the legal aid lawyer. She was fabulous. So I really encourage you, if there's ever any type of court intervention like some court order go to legal aid go to this lawyer immediately because uh, they also have a social worker there that will help you try to navigate this ridiculous system and I um yeah I just think that it's it's disgusting there it's a biased you know assessment there's a wait list for finding right assessors this all goes through the courts and I can't say enough how awful this system is at um, you know, as Indigenous people, we're told our whole lives, we don't matter, uh, we are lesser than, we are extinct, we are savage, we are pagan, we are awful people. And then the system comes in and makes it worse by amplifying that, by, you know, looking down on our parenting and such and um, intervening on, on Indigenous people solely because they are Indigenous. Never giving indigenous people a fair shake so i just have zero respect for this system at this point and um you know right now we're in a provincial election so it doesn't matter but after the election whoever is going to be the next uh human services person know that i am going to try to work at new policy development with you because this is unacceptable racism within the system it's easy to talk about um other points like surveillance i mean all you have to do is a FOIP request. All you have to do is a Google search and you can see time and time again that Indigenous people have been targeted by CSIS and the RCMP. You know, uh, one of my highest uh, viewed episodes happened to be from the uh, one that I talked about, uh, the book review that I talked about Indigenous surveillance, that one. <laughs> all of these things happening all of the time, right? Um, how convenient. That was one of my most downloaded episodes. Anyway, ridiculous. But we don't really talk about the biases and racism within the system when it comes to child welfare. Um, Cindy Blackstock obviously does. Um, there was a case earlier this year, and if it wasn't for Christy Belcourt really pushing to shine a light on the systemic racism within the system, I don't know if this mother would have got her kids um, given back to her. But at the end of the day, that family went through the trauma of having to be separated because the system discriminated against her as an Indigenous mother. You know, this is unacceptable. This is not okay. I do not understand why people think that's okay. So with that, I just, I wanted to put it out there that child welfare, um, 
you know, if you took nothing from this, call legal aid if you have a court injunction, because they are the only people that I have heard of that are willing to help you as a parent try to navigate this system. So with that, I guess, um, yeah, really, really enjoyed that. I really wished a friend of mine was with me because um, she works at child, uh, well, she's a psychologist actually, and she does um, child welfare advocacy and intervention on a regular basis. And, you know, I just think she's really great. And I wish she was there with me that whole time. Cause I know that she would have understood the gravity of what was happening and, um, why it's so awful and would have probably been able to speak for an hour just on herself and her experiences. So anyway, 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 we should probably move on. Um, Prince of Peace. I'm sure y'all have been hearing me talk about Prince of Peace. Uh, on February 7th, we finally had a, a meeting. It was the last public meeting and the last check mark in the school closing procedures as followed through the school act. And um, surprisingly, Sage gave some kind of last minute 24 hour deal. And I told the parents, you know, there must have been some kind of great deal because as a school trustee, if I was elected as a school trustee and we have to go through this ever again, I would never wish that on anybody. So my hope is we've it's been delayed for a month. Um, I'm hoping that something will be figured out within a month, but I'm not I'm getting my hopes up and I'm trying not to get the hopes up of others because um, you just never know what's going to happen in these negotiations. And because they're private negotiations, we don't get to hear all of the, um, you know, the details. So it's just pretty hard for me to get my, my hopes up on that. So funny enough that night, um, Bob Edwards had an open house and uh, Bob Edwards has a, a accelerated French program. So what happens is that, uh, if you start in grade seven, you can actually be certified as bilingual by grade 12 if you go through all of these years of education. So uh, we went and checked it out and it turns out they have like this, I don't know, grade nine trip where they go to Ottawa and Quebec City and Montreal. So uh, my daughter seemed pretty excited about that. And I, the first question I asked is, can parents volunteer to be on it? And the answer, no. So I was devastated. So I told her if she can't go there, which then we laughed at me because, of course, she can go there if she wants to. So we're doing some shopping and I'm I'm hoping that she'll consider uh, doing that because I think it's really important uh, for the kids. Um, my daughter, she also had a basketball tournament. So I posted a bunch of those pictures on my, my personal wall. Wonderful. This weekend, man, I have been so busy with liberal stuff. So... Yeah, provincially we have a have an election coming up, but so do we federally. And um, you know, Jason Kenny, he's a part of this Harper team anyway. And right now on Twitter, everybody's all upset. Oh, oh my goodness, the United Alberta group they put together an NDP staffer group. And it's like, ooh, I'm so sad for you. I'm so scared. Because of course, Stephen Harper and his crew first thing they did when they became uh, government was that they grabbed the Indian Act list and they gave it to CSIS and, and RCMP and said, watch these ego terrorists. So you can imagine me, you know, do 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 drafting wells and pipelines, not really thinking much about it, going, what? How am I on this list? 
Oh, yeah, because I have an Indian Act and Post status card. So if anybody ever asked you how Indian you are, you can just say, well, I'm Indian enough for the RCMP and CSIS to know who I am according to the Indian Affairs. So for all you NDPers who are so sad that the UCP put you on a, a watch list on Twitter, I don't feel sorry for you. And I'm angry at you that you weren't paying attention enough to notice they did, did that to the Indigenous like, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago. Thanks for paying attention, allies. Anyway, so that's on Twitter right now. And I, um, so I started the day on Saturday with a day of action. Obviously, I don't know what anybody knows, but it's like minus 50 here right now. So it's like, I don't know, minus 24. Then you factor in the windshield and it's ridiculous. So, you know, we're under some kind of cold temperature threat or whatever, which is actually quite funny because my family from Yellowknife thinks it's funny. We think this is cold. So anyway, I knew it would be cold in February because uh, I actually turned down Heart and Stroke Foundation this year. This was the first year I said no, because they every February they do um, a heart drive, which I love and I support and I agree with because I lost my father-in-law to um, uh, heart failure. And as of the last couple of months, I've been put on a whole bunch of high blood pressure pills and that as well. I'm sure all my listeners understand why. <laughs> anyway, so obviously this is something I support. I want to contribute to. But every year that I did it, I noticed on the weekends it was like minus 20 every February. So I decided this year I would say no for the first time. So when we decided we were going to do the Liberal Party, we decided we were going to do a, a day of action. I was like, well, we're doing an indoor day of action. So that usually means phone banking. That means we, you know, call people up on the phone and say, hey, we're the liberals. Do you like what we're doing? And then we categorize you on our little checklist and decide whether you're a supporter or not and go from there. We never argue with people. It's just pointless. What's the point of doing that? But for a lot of people, they really do love us. So that's great. So that's who we talk to. And that's who we encourage to stay in contact with us. So for our uh, day of action, we contacted a bunch of the liberals in our area to ask them to come to our points in politics. And uh, it's shocking how quick two hours go. So that's what happened there. And then I had to run over to Elections Canada training downtown. Um, and, and again, you know, this is multi-party, federal level, and there was hardly anyone there. And I, I cannot understand that because all of the writings need to understand these rules so anyway there was this like one conservative he came all the way up from uh, lethbridge so i took a picture and uh, posted it out there i hope you've seen it um lots of stuff like that going on i know that uh the uh, black history month was being celebrated at the evergreen community spaces and i hope it was a great event i know for me because the elections canada training went till five and then i had to go eat and you know, try to get things ready and going. And, uh, and now I'm getting this cold again. God, my daughter was getting a cold again. So I was just really worn down. So I was really sad by uh, Saturday night. And then, of course, today we had um, this uh, LPC, so Liberal Party of Canada, I always say LPC, and the IPC, the Indigenous Peoples Commission, meet and greet down at the McDonald's by Glenmore Landing. And this is right exactly where Harper used to have his stupid office. And we used to protest there so much that they finally just said, you know what? 
this is private property. Unless your business coming here, you're not allowed to protest here. So then we had to start protesting across the street. But um, anyway, his sign's not there anymore. Thank God. And they have, uh, there's this woman and she won by six votes provincially against the conservatives. Anyway, I'm not sure. I don't think she's rerunning, but she was a, an NDP MLA and her sign was actually the one that replaced Harper's. I can't tell you how every time I go in there, how good that feels <laughs> seeing that there. So anyway, we talked about, um, you know, structure, uh, riding structure. I was saying to my husband, you know, if every single Canadian took one year out of their life to be a part of a riding association, no matter what party you're with, we would have a stronger democracy. Because if you're an NDP supporter and you devote a year of your life to the NDP, you know, that helps our democracy stay stronger and add more ideas and policy development, votes on policy. So that really does help our democracy. Um, I was at... Uh, David Swan had his farewell last night. And so I went to that and I brought my daughter. And one of my favorite people there, Mike, he, we talked about, we always talk about climate change, always. Because, uh, well, anybody paying attention to anything knows that we're in a pretty short window to make any substantive change. So we've been talking about a lot of different things. We've, you know, been protesting together for years. And, uh, you know, really want Robin Luft to be able to implement democracy change as well as the uh, provincial or federal level and how sad I was I campaigned on democracy change and that doesn't seem like we're going to have a lot of, of any substantive change until the next election anyway. So, you know, and, and it's just wonderful talking to people, like-minded people who look bigger at development of, of policy than just the, oh, build that pipe, like, conversation. So I really love being in a room full of provincial liberals that understand the gravity of what it's like being an Albertan and having ridiculous policy that doesn't make any sense. Um, Dr. David Swan, he got involved originally over climate issues because as a doctor, he knew that we were all going to have incredible health issues related to that. He also um, did teaching health to um, folks in university. So he, he was just, he's just a brilliant, kind, em empathetic man. And um, at one point in time, people were allowed to take the mic. So I did, I went up and I talked about how, <sighs> for the folks who don't know, like we have a lot of events in Calgary that support the families of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And, um, you know, I, I started going to those when my daughter was born and uh, recognizing how easy I could be there or how easy my mother could have been there and um, how it, the only people that were consistently came were liberals. And Dr. David Swan was one of them. He's always come to our events, always had empathy for that, always talked about how we need to make substantive change there, um, included me, elevated my platform, talked to me, um, encouraging me always. So I talked about he is literally one of the people who helped me find my voice because he always encourages people to speak their truth. So when people do speak their truth, they find their voice. And that's what I said about him and to him in front of everybody because I think it's important. I, know, I never would have ran for Ward 10. I never would have kept going with the federal liberals if it wasn't for people like him. And I can think of, 
you know, him and my uh, friend Chad Cowie, people like that who have always encouraged me. And uh, now here I am on a, on a podcast talking about my opinion on things and trying to educate non-Indigenous people on the issues that we're facing in the hopes that they can see where they're part of the problem by not advocating for those changes or not elevating other Indigenous voices. So anyway, speaking of other Indigenous voices, boy, was there ever a screw up that happened um, from the Alberta Teachers Association. Excuse me, I'm getting a cold. <laughs> um, there was, um, they always have their conventions. And when they have their conventions, they have lots of different speakers, right? And um, the one year they decided they were going to have Joseph Boyden. And at the exact same time, that actual two-spirited people were going to be teaching. So nobody went to the two-spirit, the actual indigenous people. They actually went to the Joseph Boyden seminar because they thought he was indigenous. So to me, I, I don't know who is, you know, teaching the folks at this, oh, these are good people to, to talk to on this because, you know, these folks um, understand indigenous issues when it, they literally elevate the voices of people who are probably some of the most harmful to indigenous people. And I say this because Joseph Boyden talked about being two-spirit and said, oh, no, I'm totally two-spirit because my heart is in New Orleans and my other heart is in Ontario somewhere. And for Indigenous folks who are trying to, you know, teach people that two-spirit is like a cultural perspective that's different for every single nation, uh, for people who are, identify as gay or lesbian or transgender, like there's just no concept about the gravity of what he he said and how hurtful that was to Indigenous folks and especially the Two-Spirit um, uh, community because there's just, again, just no understanding of what LGBTQ2 plus issues are with a racial lens. And, you know, there's never been any kind of apology or anything like that, but whatever. We're here. This is where we're at. And I just, you know, just keep trying to educate people on on how one speaker can hurt so many people. And that was on top of him, you know, talking about this wonderful academic in the BC uh, University that, you know, there were women on record saying, no, this guy actually hurt women. And yet here we are elevating this guy's profile. So it, it's, it's awful because it just teaches us don't speak out, you know, don't talk about you know, whatever racism, um, sexism, sexual assault, all of those things. That's what it teaches. And yet, I don't know why that's so lost on folks, but it is. So anyway, 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 um, I wanted to bring the, up the um, Alberta Teachers Association because they, they brought in the speaker from this organization that is supposed to be focusing on um, addictions. And, you know, I, I'm so upset about this issue and, and the fact that so many people don't understand why this is such a big, big deal. Um, so my husband does a podcast of um, addicts in recovery and talks to people in recovery all the time and some of the issues that they come across. And there's still not a real, um, I don't know, understanding that not everybody is um, an, an addict. Like when you talk about addiction, there's so much mental stigma 
right? Um, people, they don't want to talk about what addiction actually is and, and the brain uh, ways of how that works. And when you start talking about addiction in general, how people are looked down upon as if that somehow their fault um, and never addressing trauma, never addressing the under underlining issue that caused the addiction. You know, so there's just huge stigma about it. And everybody who follows Bell's Let's Talk knows that the whole point is to try to uh, bring that stigma down. I mean, nobody would blame a cancer um, victim. Nobody would. But yet when it comes to mental health issues, they always blame the person and never focus on the actual treatment. So and, th- and that's a problem that addicts face all the time. Because it is a mental health issue that's not being properly addressed in Alberta. And because people are so cheap, they don't want to spend any tax money towards actual addiction and recovery. As a result, we have all these other issues that are, are a problem. And one of them, of course, is stigma. So you can imagine how upsetting it was to have the Alberta teachers um, do this conversation where they bring in this guy who's not just with an addiction recovery group, but his name is Dean Voss. Um, Dean Voss of ARC and, and Andrew Evans, the convicted murderer of Nicole Parsians, who was sentenced um, in BC in 2007. So Dean Voss r- actually lobbied for the release of this Andrew Evans fellow. So Andrew Evans murders an indigenous woman, an indigenous woman sex worker in BC. And this other guy actually lobbies to get him out of jail. So these two are non-indigenous. What a coincidence. And the Alberta teachers wants to bring this guy in who's actually killed someone and, and have them talk. And I can't explain why it is everybody is going after ARC and not the Calgary police. Why? Calgary police were going to tag team with this guy. They were happy to do it with him. Um, I know a lot of addicts in recovery that have never murdered. I know a lot of addicts in recovery that have never murdered an indigenous woman. I know a lot of addicts in recovery that have not had somebody else lobby to get them out of jail. What is going on with these two that they think that was okay? What's going on with the Calgary police that they thought that was okay? I do not understand how anyone thought this was okay ever. And now, of course, the Alberta teachers are like, oh, yeah, now we see our, you know, our flaw in this. (laughs) Really? So I know that this has triggered the family because they're on Twitter now for the first time. And they're talking about this and I am going to retweet them until because this is how you actually support families of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. So if you get a chance, go on to Twitter and start following Nicole Riders and it'll say Nicole Spirit Riders. I am Marilyn, mother of Nicole Parsians, who was killed and by convicted sexual predator Andrew Evans of the Alberta Adolescence Recovery Center who works with youth. I cannot believe I have to tell you this. I cannot believe the Alberta teachers thought this was a totally cool person to have speaking. This, you know, I understand that you, you are sentenced and you, you serve your time. 
But I don't know too many people, like, I, I don't think anyone that's listening knows Marilyn. Marilyn should be speaking about these issues. Beverly Jacobs, all there are so many families associated with missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit today that could easily be talking about how it is their family was murdered. But that's not really what they wanted to talk about. They wanted to talk about addiction. <laughs> then why don't you talk to a million other people about addiction issues? Why would you, why would you give a platform to a convicted murderer like that? And not just any convicted murderer, a convicted murderer against an indigenous sex worker. <sighs> I'm pretty sure in my last um, episode, I talked about how people are targeting sex workers and how sex workers need rights. And I'm just going to reemphasize that. Please follow like Pace Society and uh, Shift here in Calgary. They talk about these issues on a regular basis about the, the violence that sex workers face. And um, yeah, and I'm not okay with Calgary police that was a-okay with this and how they've gotten away scot-free on all of this. I have no idea. And the Alberta Teachers Association, obviously, I don't know why people are okay with this stuff. I don't understand how it is we're here where I'm trying to talk to folks about this and they thought this was okay. I don't know. So anyway, if, if you are looking for an Indigenous, you know, youth group to support Man, I've been talking to you guys about uh, Riley Many Bears and SN7. Why wouldn't you follow them? Give to that youth sports initiative. It's incredi incredibly important. Um, you know, Sheldon Kennedy, he's been talking a lot about uh, all of the coaches in, in Canada that are actual sexual predators and such. Why don't you... There's a million different organizations that don't have anybody negative associated to that why on earth wouldn't you start supporting that instead? Um, anyway, so much to talk about there, but for whatever reason, we just can't seem to get anywhere with that conversation. And folks want to elevate all the wrong people for whatever reason. Speaking of which, Elizabeth, I'm just going to talk about U.S. Poly just for a little bit. Um, I don't, I think most people, we're all on the same page that Trump is its own house fire. But um, Elizabeth Warren has uh, decided she's running. You're not going to believe this. This is what I mean about Green Party um, racism in Canada and that type of thinking in the States. So Elizabeth Warren, uh, Warren has gotten like jobs and money based off the fact that somewhere she said she's 2% Cherokee or something. Um, this has been debunked by Indigenous scholars and yet this perpetuates so what has happened since she's declared that she's going to be running is all the racism against Indigenous people by all, everybody. If you're Republican, why Indigenous people are stupid. And if you're, a, you know, Elizabeth Warren a supporter, how um, Indigenous need to shut up and just be happy that uh, she wants to be Indigenous. So I've been sharing some stuff on, uh, you know, how to be a better ally to Indigenous people. And um, I really hope people start to see the gravity of what I'm talking about because they're attacking actual Indigenous people on Twitter right now. All of the, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren supporters, which is awful. So anyway, uh, with that, I'll say Indigenous have been talking about this, about our issues and sharing our traumas in reports, commissions and public hearings just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor those words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their platforms and policies. 
if they don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with gender equity plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, if they're not giving money for mental health services like addiction, know your vote to that party will directly negatively impact marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, the violence and violence prevention in general. Um, You know, I've always talked that short little thing, the multiple reports about child welfare reform. Literally, there are so many reports, including the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And yet here I am telling you about a conversation on Wednesday that happened that so clearly talks about systemic racism and it's going in one ear and out the other. So if you're a politician that is even thinking about running, you better be thinking about child welfare reform and be implementing them. Um, Violence prevention. Oh, God. You know, violence prevention, a good thing to be bringing is probably not a convicted killer to be talking about that. You can have maybe clips of some of the problems as long as it's focused on prevention, but hearing about his sob story when an actual mother is still mourning her dead daughter, that's not okay. Um, Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the education, uh, justice, health institutions with multiple reports that say the same thing. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they do not understand colonialism, racism, and sexism, they literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties or local politicians, community organizations, etc. So earlier this week, I called out the uh, United, um, uh, the UCP. Why? Because they put out a meme saying, oh, Rachel Notley's playing footsies with Trudeau. And I'm like, oh, this is sexist. This is super sexist. And unbelievably, well, I guess it should be believable. Of course, you know, there were people who are like, what is sexism? Guess what? You have zero business actually running for politics if you don't know what sexism is. Anyway, gender discrimination costs taxpayers. So if you legitimately care about your conservative dollars, money, 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 then you better start knowing what we're talking about. Violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. And I'm sad to say that 40 years my aunt and my mom were sitting around a table talking about the exact same things me and my cousin have been talking about around the table in the last week. Every indigenous generation has faced it. In fact, there hasn't been that much change in 40 years to child welfare and justice proves it. Um, this is why I started the podcast, to speak freely without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions. As many people do not want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure want to tell us theirs, and usually by the same people that know nothing about Indigenous people, know nothing about colonialism, know nothing about the constant surveillance that we are under, our protests, our vigils, our child welfare rights, everything, typical microaggressions that we have to deal with, people with internalized racism, you know, people who are gatekeepers that live off the status quo, or other people who are like so in their trauma that they stop people from doing the work and deplete all the resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. That's why it's so sad I needed a podcast to talk about these things, because there's no platform for people to have these conversations, to heal and to move forward, when the solutions are so painfully out there. I want to always put cultural safety into action creating a safer space for not just Indigenous, but for all people of color, those with disabilities, LGBTQ2+, and more. 
when do you have to do something. Having good intentions is not enough. You have to take action to make change. You have to speak out against racism, sexism, ableism, uh, transphobia, homophobia. Ask your these questions with more understanding. Find allies to create that support network to help advocate for culturally safe approaches. Take responsibility for your own learning. Read, reflect, ask questions. Do not expect this to come from Indigenous people. Take time for self-reflection. Beware of your assumptions and your biases. Question everything you've learned about Indigenous people and take steps to actively disrupt those stereotypes. Commit to lifelong learning. Be prepared to be uncomfortable. Understanding colonialism and the legacy of racism is an ongoing and difficult task. Uh, I want to say thank you to heretohelp.bc.ca on what is Indigenous safety and why I should care about it as a source to kind of give people a guide. Google it. Just Google cultural safety. You'll find so much. Internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous and marginalized folks experience by the structure of racism imposed on these lands, like the Indian Act, like Indian residential schools and other land clearing policies. Um, RacialEquityTools.org has a lot of information. Just Google internalized racism. Uh, Google Donna Bevins. She has tons of info. So bystander intervention. If you witnesses, if you witness public instances of, you know, anti-racism, anti-indigenous, anti-black, anti-Muslim, anti-trans, or any other form of oppressive uh, interpersonal violence and harassment, do make your presence known. Make your presence known as a witness. You know, make eye contact. Let the person know you're here for support. Move closer to the person being harassed. If you're, you know, not at risk to do so, create a distance or a barrier between the person being harassed and the attacker. You know, if it's safe to do so and the person being harassed consents, film or record the incident. It's a lot easier to delete it later than wish you'd have taken it. And it usually just de-escalates situations. I've been there, done that, especially with police and protesters. You start recording them, they usually de-escalate. Take cues from the individual being harassed. Are they already trying to do something on their own? Honor that. Don't tone police the people being harassed. See if they're resisting in their own way. Make suggestions like, hey, do you want to move to another train car? Do you want for them to leave you alone? Follow their lead. But follow up with the in individual after the incident is over to see if they need anything else. Give them your card, your name, your number, and say, hey, Think about it, and if you want to contact me later, let me know, because it may very well have been an incident that was recorded on like a C-Train platform, and between that and their lawyer and your contact information, that's enough to have like a hate crime. How wonderful would that be to actually start recording these things? Or maybe if they file a report with the police that you can say, yes, I was a witness to everything that they said and corroborate what they said. Most importantly, do what you can do to keep yourself safe. Assess your surroundings. Do you need to pull other people in? Working as a team is best. And can you and the person being harassed just move to a safer space? Don't call the police. For many people experiencing harassment right now, whether Arab, Muslim, immigrant, black, queer, trans, uh, indigenous, police can actually cause a greater danger for the person being harassed. So unless they say, can you please call the police? Don't do it. Um, don't escalate the situation. As I said, recording actually de-escalates it. But the goal is to get the person 
being harassed to safety and not incite any more, you know, whether it's a verbal violence or whether it's physical violence from the attacker. But it is important to not do nothing because your silence is dangerous. It communicates approval and leaves the victim high and dry. If you find yourself too nervous or afraid to speak out, you move closer to the person being harassed to communicate your support with your body. If you're experiencing emotional distress and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's toll-free and it's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I want to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom of what strength looks like through your example. I want to say thank you to my dad for teaching me to be blunt and strong. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian roots and for stepping up and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It's through her I'm a second generation proud Calgarian. I want to say thank you to my husband for producing and editing this show on top of being my husband, my childhood friend, father of our child and support down my journey of the Red Road. He's witnessed decades of racism and sexism to our child that we are blessed to learn from every day. I am honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian. I want to say thank you to Amanda, Ashley, Beatrice, Diana, Joni, Judy, Kenna, Matt, Nancy, Nathan, Phyllis, Sharon, The Sprawl, Veronica, and Tiffany. Thank you for signing up. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. We are on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And nativecalgarian.com is also up where you can share with your friends. Thanks again for listening.